It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Twins have had a unique place in many cultures for better and sometimes for worse. Tales of twins are found all throughout history, from the legend of Romulus and Remus founding Rome to the zany hijinks of identical twins switching places in movies like The Parent Trap. Twins are becoming more common these days with technologies like in vitro fertilization, but they're still rare enough to get a lot of attention. Our next guest is the ultimate expert on twins. He's written books about the cultural history of twins and directed a documentary called Twins on Twins. He's a twin himself, by the way. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Are you a twin? Are there twins in your family? What's been your experience, either being a twin or maybe the parent thereof? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Full disclosure, I'm not a twin, but I'm a parent of twins. William Viney is a researcher and writer based in Rome. His newest book is called Twin Kind, The Singular Significance of Twins. Will, welcome to Central Time. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, as I mentioned, you are a twin yourself. Uh, what is it that led from being a twin to having a lot of your, your research and writing focused on what it means to be a twin? Look, I think actually it's a lot of ignorance um, and a, a certain measure of, of curiosity. I, I wanted to write this book because despite being a twin, being, despite, you know, being born a twin and not really having a choice about being a twin, <laughs> I knew really nothing about about them and and growing up i was never really encouraged to think very critically about what it means to be a twin and that carried on well into to adulthood and and then when i looked around i was like well there are no resources really to understand this this category that i was born into i was just you know twins are just like a simple fact of life something that you would kind of have to accept at at face value so i thought that there was something there was some work to do that um at, at least if nothing else just to sort of educate myself you uh your introduction to the book is written by your twin brother and he writes that you get a question kind of like one i got all the time people would ask me what's it like to be the parent of twins you guys got get asked what's it like to be twins uh i assume your answer is kind of similar to mine like i don't know any different look it is it's really i i I don't but i guess (laughs) i I, I, over over the last 10 years of, of of becoming this uh this kind of Am I a twin researcher? I suppose I am a writer about twins. I've learned that what it is that people want to hear, right? They want to hear that you look alike. They want you to tell them that you're intimate with your twin sibling or that you hate each other. (laughs) They want all kinds of stereotypes either to be confirmed or to to be denied. And, And I guess over the years and I grow older, and I don't know, Rob, I don't know where, when, when people ask you about being a parent of twins, you get to learn the shape of those stereotypes. Um, and I was really interested in my research to find out where some of those stereotypes come from. And this fascination with twins is nothing new. Uh, the first chunk of your book is a survey of twins in mythology. And I kind of knew, I mentioned the Romulus and Remus thing, and you think Castor and Pollux, the, the Gemini uh, siblings from ancient Greek mythology, super common uh, twin legends and folklore uh, wherever you are in the world. Can you give us a sense of how common uh, twins are in mythology? Yeah, twin twin myths are often foundational to a community or to cities. Twins are often the first born beings um, 
in a in a cosmology as they are in in ancient Egyptian myths. Um, they're the first men or women, and the first that the, the, the gods put on earth. They're sort of suitable heroes or or kind of adventurers and explorers. You know, Castor and Pollux, Heracles and Iphicles, Artemis and Apollo. These are not like minor figures in Greek and Roman mythology, they're kind of like the heavy hitters. <laughs> and it really fascinated me to learn this because, it, you know, there's no class you go through, uh, it, 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 there was no class I went through to learn about twins um, and their impact uh, on ancient civilization. So that was a, that was a wild ride. In many cultures, you write uh, everywhere from Africa to uh, medieval Europe uh, and, and elsewhere. The birth of twins was looked at as something as being very bad, either saying something bad about uh, the mother in many cases or an omen and not a good omen. Uh, how common is it to have uh, the birth of twins be something bad, maybe even dreaded? I mean, it goes back a little bit to this these ideas of like foundational people. You know, in the in the Bible, we have. Jacob and Esau, their mother, Rebecca, is told that two nations struggle in, in her womb and the brothers quarrel and argue and Jacob deceives their, their, their father and wins the birthright and the, and the nations of Israel are born through him. Um, likewise, in Persian uh, mythology and religion, you have these primeval good twin and bad twin kind of constantly at war with one another. Um, now, how that happens, I don't know, but you find that very broadly. You mentioned um, uh, medieval uh, twin and twin beliefs. Um, it was very common for women who who fell pregnant and had twin and and had twins to be accused of adultery. At least that's what we learn from court poetry and satires. And it was very common, therefore, to associate uh, twins with adultery um a real big problem if you were a woman uh living in christian europe in the middle ages talking to william viney about his new book twin kind the singular significance of twins you can join in with your questions maybe your experiences a twin or parent of twins yourself join in now at 800-642-1234 that's 800-642-1234 Will, I want to give a listen to uh, something that really set the modern standard of creepiness among twins. Here's a 1980s The Shining. Come and play with us, Danny. Forever. And ever. And ever. So a chicken or the egg question here. Coming into The Shining, did people think of twins as creepy? Or coming out of The Shining, did that movie make people think of twins as creepy? Uh, how do you split the difference there? I don't know, but we can look at the history of 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 the image. You know, of the Louise and Lisa Burns, the British um, girls that played the the twins. They're, they're they're made up to look like a Diane Arbus portrait called Identical Twins, Russell, in uh, taken in New Jersey in 1966 and that picture is actually kind of cute and kind of interesting and it's kind of freaky but it's not scary but i think what your listeners just heard what you just played for us the music <laughs> and the sound of their voices now there's there's quite a few elements there and if you look at just what the burn sisters look like on screen i don't think that they look terribly horrifying at least to me but 
you know, um, maybe I'm not a good judge of this <laughs> after all these years of thinking about it. Um, one thing is for sure is that we're, sh we're shown these twins and they're never fully human. And, but they might be kind of, because they're twins, more than human. And that's a, the kind of horror of, of twinning that you find in other films too, that they're never simply one. Now, something that's kind of a horrible in real life, Will, we've heard over the years lots and lots of psychological and sociological research based on twins, comparing identical twins to fraternal twins, twins who grew up together to those who didn't. The origins of modern twin science came from some pretty dark places. And, and I didn't know this. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Well, you know, twins entered into a, a kind of industry of twin research towards the end of the 19th century with a man called a British scientist, a man called Francis Galton. He also later on coined the term eugenics with twin research and with, you know, eugenics, the attempt to uh, mold and develop ideal societies. Um, you, you, you have a kind of a pairing to, you know, please forgive me, but you have the kind of pairing of twin research and eugenics. And during the 1920s and 30s, you have a, a, an, ex, an explosion and development of twin research, um, not just in England, also in America, throughout Northern Europe and in, in Germany under National Socialism. Um, I think when I speak to people about twin research and they and their eyes widen and their and, and eyebrows raise and they, they think of twin research, they associate it with the, with with Mengele, Joseph Mengele was a who was a Nazi scientist and and did horrific experiment, experiments at Auschwitz. Now I I think what I am very careful to do in the mm -hmm. book and I think that everybody should be aware of is that twin science was completely normal at the time and it continued to be completely normal after the war. Um, and I was very fascinated to learn what happened to the careers of those scientists after the war. Some, like Mengele, disappeared into Latin America. Others continued in Europe, in Germany and elsewhere uh, as twin researchers. Twin research still involves about 1.5 million twins around the world. It's still big business. Will Viney is with us, health researcher and writer. We're talking about his latest book. It's called Twin Kind, The Singular Significance of Twins. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Love to hear from the twins out there or maybe parents of twins. If you're living life as a twin, what are some of the most common questions people ask you? Maybe you're annoyed by those questions now, or maybe you love that uh, people give a little extra attention. Are there weird misconceptions or stereotypes you come across? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation about twins with William Viney, author of the new book, Twin Kind, The Singular Significance of Twins. Let's go to your calls at 800-642-1234. Harry is with us in Milwaukee. Harry, hello. Well, hi. How are you today? Good. What do you want to tell us about? I am the father of a set of twins and the uncle of a set of twins. <laughs> and the one question that they always get is, which one of you is the evil one? 
And Harry, as the parent and uncle, do you identify any of these twins as the evil one? No. Good. They're both, but all (laughs) of them are lovely, lovely wood ladies. A fine parenting decision. Harry, thanks a lot for sharing that with us. I'm guessing you've been asked this before, Will. For sure. You know, I think, you know, on the whole, people want you as a twin pair to represent a kind of nice set of contrasts, you know, like we have the behavior or kind of psychology that that a fairy godmother might give out you know one's beautiful one's less beautiful (laughs) one can do this the other one can do that one's good one's evil you know and it's a package right twins get treated like packages um i think that the which one is the evil twin is very much part of that idea that twins form a whole Thanks for that call, Harry. Dot joins us now in Manitowoc. Dot, hi. Hi. Uh, my brother and sister are twins, and my father always introduced them as the twin, and I was considered the baby. And for the longest time, I had wished that I would have been the triplet because they got all the attention. Oh, okay. Dot, thanks a lot for sharing that story with us. First of all, this idea of uh, will twins being identified, especially when they have other siblings, as the twins? There they are as a mm-hmm. unit again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rob, what happens in your household? Do your twins get called the twins? Or we is didn't. there a policy of avoiding it? They were, they were the only kids, so we were able to yeah. just say their names. Um, I think sometimes, yes. I maybe in their friend group, sometimes they might have been referred to as the twins. Uh, but even that, I think, was was pretty rare. But I, I feel like I run into this pretty often when they're like twins with other siblings. They're the twins. That's for sure. And and in some like parenting advice you see and, and you know, some of your callers might want to tell us their experience of this, that it, you know, th- th- their advised parents have advised not to refer to their their twin children as the twins to try and give them some chance of forging a individual identity i don't know what you make of that i'm not sure either (laughs) our uh, technical director sarah is a is a triplet and says uh, we were always referenced as the triplets so there you go so again identified (laughs) as that unit thanks (laughs) thanks dot for the call jeff is with us now in appleton jeff hi hi how are you good uh what did you want to tell or ask about well i want to find out if there's been any research that shows um how often twins might come down the family line. Uh, you know, I've heard every other generation and so on. The reason I ask is my uh, my mother's father, my maternal grandfather, he was a twin, and then he had twin girls, which were my aunts. And then my father's mother, my uh, maternal grandmother, was a twin herself. But since that point, there's been no twins in our family on either side. And uh, I now have grandkids, and my kids are not twins. None of my cousins have had twins, so it's uh, it's skipping a couple generations. I want to see if there's any research along that line. Jeff, thanks for the call. Do twins run in families well? There's a there's lots of research there, and um, my summary would be that it depends on what kind of twins we're talking about. When we talk about in identical or or what we might call monozygotic twins. They come from a single fertilized egg and they split into two identical parts. Um, 
those twins, what we know is that that's just a sort of wild biological phenomena. Only ever happens uh, in, in armadillos. Armadillos have identical twins like that. Humans have twins like that. And we don't quite know why it happens. So that's monozygotic or identical twinning. When it comes to dizygotic or fraternal twinning, non-identical twins there are lots of different theories and also you know different twinning rates in different parts of the country and different parts of the world according to your ethnic and uh, your ancestry so uh it really depends and it's and all like all things that are biological it really depends on your environment your your diet your age uh, all kinds of stuff so it does sometimes seem to run in particular groups and sometimes families, but um, I I don't have the conclusive answer on that one. I thought I'd share some of that some of that information um, in case it's helpful. Thanks for that call, Jeff. We're talking to William Viney about his new book, Twin Kind: The Singular Significance of Twins. Will I want to take another stop in the history you share in the book here? A stretch in uh, psychology suggesting that. Uh, being a twin was inherently in some ways a psychological problem. What were we worrying about, especially in the middle of the 1900s? Yeah, um, I think it comes out of uh, the history of, of psychology, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis that really based its models of human development on single people. You grew up, you know, according to Freud, you grew up... Um, as a as a young boy loving your mother uh, hating your father etc 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 and you went through certain kinds of developmental stages now twins it seemed to these psychologists and psychoanalysts of the say 1950s and 60s seemed to display what should we say they didn't seem to go through these patterns of development and so what happened in the second half of the 20th century that twins seemed to kind of become a bit of a problem they seem to be a kind of a blockage towards becoming a kind of ideal individual. Now, I would kind of preface all this by saying this reflects a certain Western uh, European and Northern, Northern American ideal of what it means to be a good individual and a good citizen. But uh, for sure, twins were not celebrated uh, necessarily among this psychological profession, shall we say. From psychology to psychic phenomena, I used to tell my daughters, if just one of them was there, use your psychic link uh, with your sister to see what she wants to order from the restaurant. Uh, it never worked. But a lot of people attribute psychic connections, uh, paranormal connections between twins. You write that people actually tried to research this. Why is this such a stereotype? Uh, what has that research found? Well, I, I you know, there seems to be a, have been a, a kind of, a, a moment for scientists to take really seriously the prospect that I am particularly identical twins had a, a parapsychic connection and would set up serious experiments both in the laboratory and often with it was tended to be observed among younger children um, in their homes to try and kind of capture that moment when they seem to share one another's pain or be able to communicate uh, some kind of knowledge that no that they couldn't have possibly known without their that without their twin twin helping um 
and that seems to have died out. Like scientists have moved on from this. They 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 signed a, a declaration to to say that they all agreed. <laughs> there wasn't that there was no uh, evidence at least for telepathic connections between twins. But like it it, it doesn't seem to matter. I mean, this seems to be one of these interesting cases. It doesn't seem to matter what scientists say about that. The desire that people have for twins to have this sort of connection is still alive and well and for some reason people would love for me to feel the pain of my brother <laughs> i mean i think that there's complete sadists but you know what you know that's what that's what people want from twins again it goes back to why they're they're seen as kind of monstrous that they're they're like not fully human but maybe they're kind of more than human you know they're they're kind of they're both monsters and they're kind of gods on earth and this sort of extra power that twins may have, I think, is really exciting to people. In just our last couple of moments, Will, one part of your book I've been overlooking, the visual. You've got a lot of images from uh, ancient mythological representations of twins to modern-day pictures of twins from all over the world. Why was that visual side of uh, storytelling important to you as you talk about twins? I published a book a while ago, a while ago on twins, and people were like, where are all the pictures? <laughs> This one's got 400 images in it. It's really, really, really beautiful book. Um, so tribute to the publishers for doing such a wonderful job. And I think that people want to look at you. You know, people ask me, you're a twin. And I say, yes. And then they say, let me see a picture. And I have to show them. It's like <laughs> web giving evidence. Well, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much. William Viney is a health researcher and writer, and we've been talking about his newest book. It's called Twin Kind, The Singular Significance of Twins. Lots of pictures in there, as you heard. Hey, if you have a twin story to share with us, you can email ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. Send pictures if you want to. It's not a requirement. I'm Rob Ferret. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. Chinese food is one of the most popular types of cuisine in the United States, with restaurants ranging from Americanized Chinese dishes to regional specialties. You might have your own favorite spot for takeout or dine-in. Have you ever tried making your favorite Chinese dishes at home? The father-son co-hosts of a popular Chinese cooking YouTube series are here with us on Food Friday to give us some advice and inspiration from their new cookbook. You could join in at 800-642-1234. What is your favorite Chinese dish to order or to make? Is there something you often order at restaurants that you can't figure out how to make yourself, don't even know where to start maybe? Or if you were, your family is of Chinese heritage, what are some family food traditions you enjoy? Join in now at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. Kevin Pang is a James Beard Award-winning food writer, editorial director of Digital at America's Test Kitchen, and co-host of ATK's Hunger Pangs YouTube series. Kevin, welcome to Central Time. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. And Jeffrey Pang is a retired businessman, cooking enthusiast, and co-host of Hunger Pangs. Jeffrey, hello. 
Hi. Hello. Kevin, can you start us off by telling us about the inspiration for a very Chinese cookbook? Well, it's kind of a crazy story, Rob. So uh, about 12 years ago, my dad had forwarded me an email. Uh, uh, he forwarded me a YouTube video, and it said, Jeffrey Tang sent you a YouTube video. And of course, what do you do? I deleted it immediately, as all kids do when their parents forward them a YouTube video. But then it wasn't until a few weeks later that my mother said, hey, have you seen this video that your dad's done? And it turned out that my dad had started his own YouTube cooking channel, just completely to my, uh, uh, to my shock. And what's even crazier is that uh, he kept making these videos, and some of these videos have more than a half a million views, which back in 2012, 2013, that's, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at. And when I asked him why he made these Chinese cooking videos, he said, well, you know, one day uh, your mom and I might not be around. And so if you want these recipes that you grew up eating, we wanted to be able to pass this on to you. And so we're going to pass this on to you in a language that you know how, and that's YouTube. And, uh, you know, and that was about seven, eight years ago. And uh, ever since uh, we, I joined America's Test Kitchen and we started this cooking show called Hunger Pangs. Of course, if your last name is Pang and you're in food media, you really ought to call it Hunger Pangs, right? And uh, the success of that show yielded a very Chinese cookbook. And uh, we were uh, really, really honored that it's been named one of the best cookbooks of the year for the New York Times. And uh, that's how this book came to be. Jeffrey, why did you want to share these recipes with uh, Kevin and with everybody? <clears throat> because we don't want to lose our family's recipe. We are, we are from Hong Kong. Once we move to North America, I just worry, you know, uh, <clears throat> maybe my kid, you know, so they have no idea how to cook the Chinese food because uh, so that's why I try to, uh, you know, to make the video, you know, but, but I don't think on that time they love to learn. They only love to eat only. <laughs> so, so I, I, I would try, me and my wife try to use something, you know, to let them easy to access to, to learn. Maybe later, even not not this time. So that's why we try to use the, the, <clears throat> the YouTube, you know, we have no idea how to make it. So we, we, we go to the, to the, to the Google's to search how to make a movie. And we find, you know, Microsoft have the movie maker is very easy for the amateur and it's free. And also we have, we found, you know, some music is a, royalty free. So that's why we decide, you know, to make the video. And this is the video is, is, uh, <clears throat> is only for the our uh, family recipe. That is, uh, we, we, we would love to, you know, to share this with our friend, family, you know, uh, in the future. Okay. Great. And Kevin, uh, your dad just mentioned that uh, he's from Hong Kong. China is a big place. Uh, you mentioned in the book a lot of your recipes, not all, but a lot of the recipes in the book are from Hong Kong and the surrounding region. What is distinctive about that food from the region that might set it apart from uh, the rest of Chinese food? Yeah, the, the way I look at Chinese gastronomy, it's really 
more like a continent than it is a country. And, and the thing is, if you grew up in Hong Kong, you are going to, uh, the, the food would not be recognizable to someone who grew up in Beijing, to someone who grew up from in Shanghai or in Taiwan. And with Cantonese food, uh, I mean, the, the, the first point of reference is if you've been to a takeout restaurant, uh, I would say there's about an 85% chance that uh, the, the food there is of Cantonese origin. It might have been Americanized over the last few, uh, you know, few decades here, but uh, the, the food is, I, I would describe Cantonese food as uh, it's very uh, boldly flavored, uh, it's really about, you know, the freshness of ingredients, uh, you know, like fish, because it's a, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's on the South China Sea, uh, a lot of tofu, you know, we're, we quite enjoy tofu, a bit, a lot of fresh vegetables. And, and the thing specifically about Hong Kong in particular is that because Hong Kong is a port city, and also because Hong Kong was part of the British colony for, uh, you know, nearly 100 years, is that there's a lot of uh, almost uh, fusion type food that you see in Cantonese cooking. There's a lot of British influences. This is why we love drinking milk tea. This is why you see something like shrimp toast on menus of Hong Kong cafes. And uh, it's just a really, really uh, rich and beautiful gastronomy uh, for my homeland in Hong Kong. And I'm just really glad we get to share some of those recipes with the world. It's Food Friday. We're talking to Jeffrey Pang and Kevin Pang, the father-son team behind the YouTube video series Hunger Pangs. Their new cookbook, it's from America's Test Kitchen, is out now. And uh, it's called a very Chinese cookbook. Lots of great Chinese recipes, advice, ingredients. You can join in if you have questions or experiences to share at 800-642-1234. That's 800 642 one, two, three, four. Now, you guys shared a couple recipes with us. One of them is for sesame noodles. Jeffrey, uh, Kevin loves sesame noodles. I understand he'd almost he'd eat it instead of talking to you. Tell us uh, a little bit about the sesame noodles that your son loves so much. Uh, that is a restaurant, you know, close close uh, our place, you know, in Ken, Washington. So, Kevin was uh, <clears throat> studying in the USC in Los Angeles. So when every time he come home, he loved to have the Chinese food. So we will always go to buy the takeout before to pick him up. So one of the dishes is the uh, sesame noodles and also the, and also the, the, the fried rice, fried rice. And he he loved it, you know, because uh, I I think the you know the restaurant in in Kent, you know, to make the sesame noodle and the fried rice, that is very much the taste like Hong Kong, mm. very much like the Hong Kong taste. So and Kevin loved it very much. And Kevin, let's talk yeah. about the recipe. It looks I love mm -hmm. sesame noodles too. It looks really easy. Talk us through what makes a great sesame noodle dish. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and that dish I tried to replicate in this in this cookbook. And the thing about this particular dish, and the thing about most Chinese cooking, is that it is far simpler than you think. And what I always love to do is I like to make the sauce ahead of time, which you use a Chinese sesame paste, you use black vinegar, soy sauce, a little bit of sugar, and if you want to add chili oil, that's fine. And what I like to do is I make this in a uh, in a mason jar, and 
any time that you want this noodles, all you got to do is you can boil any noodle that you want. You can boil spaghetti if you want. You can take instant packet ramen and make that. Uh, and once you throw that together, you can take whatever you can find in your fridge, things like poached chicken or maybe bell peppers or cucumbers. And if I, you can have, as, as long as you have the sauce made ahead of time, you can have dinner in 10 minutes. And that is perhaps the easiest recipe in a very Chinese cookbook. And I dare say it's also my favorite and maybe the most delicious as well. We've got that recipe up at WPR.org slash food for the sesame noodles. We've got a, a Mongolian beef recipe up there as well from our guests, the father-son cooking duo, Jeffrey and Kevin Pang. They are co-authors of the new cookbook called A Very Chinese Cookbook. They're giving us advice on Chinese cooking in our own homes. Still time for you to join in at 800-642-1234. Did you grow up eating Chinese food? Maybe part of your own family's tradition? What are your favorite memories? What are things you make now yourself? Or uh, did you grow up eating at Chinese restaurants? Or have you recently discovered Chinese food yourself? Is there a favorite? Is there something you wish you could make at home? Maybe our guests could help you figure out how to do it. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up our Food Friday conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. Right now, we're picking up our Food Friday talk with Kevin and Jeffrey Pang. They are co-hosts of the YouTube cooking series, Hunger Pangs, co-authors of a very Chinese cookbook. That's from America's Test Kitchen. We're talking to them about Chinese and Chinese-American cooking. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions or maybe advice for perfectly cooking rice, tofu, rolls, dumplings, other staples of Chinese cooking? If you have visited or lived in China before, what differences do you see between Chinese and Chinese-American food? Join in with your questions, your experiences at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller. Brock is with us in Sheboygan. Brock, hello. Hi. Uh, You know, I love Chinese food. I could eat it every day and all day, just about. But the thing is, is that I... I love Szechuan beef, and I think I heard that you have a good Szechuan beef recipe in your book, but I cannot, for the life of me, cook it. Um, I'm miserable at it, as well as I've been eating it at a Chinese restaurant now for the past 30 years. So maybe I could save a few bucks. Do you have that in your in – your, uh, I think I heard that you do, so I'm kind of overkilling on this. Brock, thanks a lot for the call. We've got a Mongolian beef recipe, which we'll talk about in a minute at WPR.org slash food. Kevin, what uh, what would distinguish a, a Szechuan beef dish, and how can Brock make it at home successfully? Well, so th- this is an interesting question, Rob, because, you know, for, to, to, to try to answer Brock's question, the, the, the term Szechuan beef, it's really hard for me to understand or actually fathom what it might be you know to me it's it's not a uh if you ask a chinese what is szechuan beef you would probably get 10 different answers i mean to me (laughs) szechuan is something that's got uh uh, it's got uh hot numbing szechuan peppercorns it's got a lot of chilies to it it's got a little bit of vinegar tang so uh i I would say that you know i i would want to ask brock what exactly are the flavors of his what he considers szechuan beef now 
I will say that to answer the question about cooking Chinese food, one of the things that we really want to try to convince readers is that it is way easier to cook than you think. And I'm not sure if folks uh, know about America's Test Kitchen. We've, we've got two shows on uh, public television and we've got uh, uh, magazines and books that come out. Every single one of our recipe costs on average $11,000 to develop. And so we test it, we're really rigorous about the process. We write it in as clear of a ways as we can. And so uh, it, you know, if you pick up a book or if you watch on YouTube an American Test Kitchen recipe, you should be able to replicate it faithfully. And we like to think our recipes are bulletproof. So Brock, uh, you know, I would say, uh, find the book, a very, very Chinese cookbook. You can go to the library if you get it. You can buy it if you want. We love it if you buy it. But uh, try one of those recipes down. Uh, I would try Mongolian beef. Perhaps that's close to what you're described as Sichuan beef. And if you follow the instructions, you should be able to make it faithfully. It'll be delicious. And Brock, we've got that Mongolian beef anyway at WPR.org slash food. Jeffrey, uh, you've got instructions for dumplings in the book. What are your favorite kind of dumplings to make for people? Uh, the, the dumpling. <clears throat> you mean the? Well, let me let, let me answer for my dad sure. too, because he he uh, when I, I I I remember this fondly in that when I brought my. Uh, then girlfriend, now wife, home to meet my parents for the first time. Within tw- 20 minutes, my parents were showing my now wife how to fold dumplings. <laughs> and I found it to be such a beautiful, communal, ingratiating act. It's like, welcome to the family. And, you know, th- these dumplings, we it's typically, it's got pork and Napa cabbage filling, and it's got this dough wrapper. And it's just sitting around the dinner table, in wrapping dumplings and we would drop it in boiling water and we would serve it with a little bit of chili or a little bit of soy sauce. So uh, I, I'm going to step in for my dad and say sure. like those types of dumplings, which are boiled dumplings, are among our favorites. And of course, we've got that recipe in the book as well. And uh, and normally, you know, we are, we are make we are make a Shanghai this one turn because I'm a I'm a Cantonese, you know, we are <clears throat> I. I'm learning the how how to make the Shanghai this one time from my mother-in-law and my wife, and uh, <clears throat> and also we uh, <clears throat> we uh, make the <clears throat> the pan the pan fry you know the bun you know mm-hmm. is uh, <clears throat> so that we 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 actually you know uh, the Shanghai this one time is our favorite anyway. Mm. That sounds great. We're talking to Jeffrey Pang and Kevin Pang. You can watch them on YouTube. Uh, it's called Hunger Pangs, their YouTube series from America's Test Kitchen. Talking about their new cookbook, it's called A Very Chinese Cookbook. Uh, Kevin, I think a great way to start arguments in any culture around the world that cooks and eats rice is how to make the perfect rice dish. What are some secrets oh, yeah. that uh, that we could, some inspiration, some secrets we could use to make our rice at least a little better than it is right now? All right, I'm going to give you two different responses. First off, if you're just going to make rice, steamed rice, okay, this is a kind of a cheat answer, but every Cantonese family owns a rice cooker. And these are like 200, like the really good ones can be about $200, $250. And you're thinking, well, 
like that's kind of a lot for rice cooker. But if you're a Cantonese and you're making it every single day, you just want to set it and forget it. Uh, a rice cooker really does make perfect rice. So uh, that's a bit of a cheat answer. But I will say that uh, one question that we get to ask a lot during our book tour is how to make great fried rice. And I'll offer a couple of tips. First off, you should never, ever use freshly cooked rice for fried rice. And the reason is freshly cooked rice, it's too moist. It's got too much moisture. You should always take rice that you made the day before, and then you should use it. Uh, you, should, it, you should use rice that's been made a day before. And ideally, you lay it out on a baking sheet and you put it in the back of your fridge. The idea is you want to get as much moisture out of that, uh, out of the rice as possible, because the enemy of fried rice is moisture. And what you really want is you don't want it to get clumpy and sticky. So I would say my number one tip is don't use freshly cooked rice when you're making fried rice. Only use day-old rice. Speaking of equipment, Kevin, I wanted to ask about woks. I used to have a wok. I loved it. It was a terrible wok. It wasn't that good. If we want to take the plunge and say we're going to make a lot of Chinese food, what do we look for to have a good quality wok that's going to be good day in, day out? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I'm fortunate that America's Test Kitchen, we work with a team of equipment reviews, and we've tested dozens of woks over the last many years. And uh, the good news, Rob, is that the best woks don't really cost that much. Our two favorite woks, there's two brands. One's called Taylor and Eng, NG, Taylor and Eng, and it's a carbon steel wok. And the second is called is from this company called Joyce Chen. J-O-Y-C-E Chen, C-H-E-N. You can get Joyce Chen. Uh, well, with, with Taylor and you need to order from the website. But with Joyce Chen, you can get it at Home Depot and get it on Amazon. And it costs, I think last I checked, it was like $35 to $40. And a good carbon steel wok, provided that you can season the wok properly, meaning you, uh, you, know, you, you give it a good scrub of oil and you turn up the heat, you should be able, it, it practically turns nonstick if you're able to, season a wok properly so uh, I, i'm looking for a good carbon steel wok and it doesn't have to cost that much and i'd say my favorite right now are these two companies taylor and ng and joyce chen they're both really reliable woks, and it's not going to be that expensive jeffrey are you proud of kevin's cooking oh yes of course and uh from from zero to 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent. well oh. thank you dad <laughs> okay. Oh, can I can 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 I can I also talk a little bit about the wok? You know, when I was young, my mother taught me, you know, how to season the wok and use the you know use the pot fret, the pig fret, and the chai, you know, to season the wok. But now American Dad's Kitchen, our cookbook have a chapter also teach the people how to season the wok. That is very useful for the people who love for cooking. I I use a carbon steel, you know, just only since last year. I always use the iron iron wok or the or the or the you know the long stick the long stick wok. But I love to use the carbon steel right right now because I know how to season the wok. That's great. And Kevin, uh, can you encourage people to maybe? teach those dishes to the next generation to cook with family members in just our last uh, minute or so. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the most um, important things that we can do. And, and really, I've got an eight-year-old now, and, and really, it's 
ever since I became a parent, I think just the act of cooking with family members, cooking with your kid, it's such a community and relationship building act. And, uh, you know, I can certainly see my relationship with my parents improve. And I think it can only help uh, uh, improve the relationship with our next generation. So cook with your kids, cook with your family members. It's really worth it. Kevin and Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Rob. Thank you so much. Thank you. Kevin and Jeffrey Pang are co-hosts of the Hunger Pangs cooking series on YouTube and co-authors of the new cookbook we've been talking about, a very Chinese cookbook that's from America's Test Kitchen. They joined us to share some advice for cooking Chinese and Chinese-American dishes. Hey, we've got two recipes online from Kevin and Jeffrey. You can find them at WPR.org food. We've got the sesame noodles. I love sesame noodles. I'm going to make this thing. It looks way easier than I would have expected. And then the uh, Mongolian beef we mentioned as well. Find them both at WPR.org food. Coming up Monday on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, spring isn't too far away, and you may be thinking about doing some work outside. An expert in landscaping joins the show with some advice and some inspiration for yards big and small. Join that conversation. That's Monday morning at 8 here on the Ideas Network. Yesterday on the show, we invited you to call in to talk about the way your pets helped you connect with other people. You called in with some great stories. Here are some more. Sharon emailed, Max is a seven-year-old blue healer cross shepherd. He is more than friends with a farmer neighbor, my son and his girlfriend. He does get excited to see them and plays without holding back. We also got more stories from our colleagues here at work. Megan with the ECB writes, my husband and I were very lucky to have found our first home in a pet-centered neighborhood. We don't know all know each other's first names. We all know the names of everyone's pets. Common chats include, looks like Hershey's mom got a new car. And Joel from The Morning Show tells us, I keep reptiles, primarily snakes, including different species of pythons and dwarf boas. Caring requires ongoing research and reaching out to more knowledgeable keepers in the herpeto culture community. He says there's so much more available than when he got his first snake as a kid online and in person. Keep sharing your stories. Email ideas at WPR.org. This is Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has been reviewing several proposals for a new state legislative district map after a majority of the court determined the current Republican-drawn maps are unconstitutional. If the legislature and Governor Tony Evers can't come to an agreement on replacement maps all on their own, the court will step in and choose one for them. Now, Wisconsin Senate and Assembly each passed new maps earlier this week. The maps that the Republican-led legislature went with, identical to the set previously proposed by Evers, according to the state's Legislative Reference Bureau. We're going to get into what happened, where the maps could go from here, and what it all means. You could join in at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have about the maps that are on the table? What are your thoughts about this possible outcome? Do you want to see these maps passed by the legislature signed by Governor Evers, or do you want to just wait and see what the court ends up with? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Sean Johnson is WPR's Capital Bureau Chief. Sean, welcome back to Central Time. Hey, Rob. And Rich Kramer is a WPR reporter based in Eau Claire. Rich, thanks for being with us. 
Thanks for having me, bud. The two of you have been covering this this week. Uh, Rich, let's start with you. First of all, what happened? I think uh, people might look at this as a surprise development. Republicans say, okay, we're going to pass a map, and it's going to be Democratic Governor Tony Evers' map. Yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of a surprise, but, but also a bit of deja vu. So uh, this week, the Republicans uh, introduced the exact maps, identical, as you mentioned, uh, per the Legislative Reference Bureau. Uh, they attached it to a bill that that was originally drawn up to be a, about a nonpartisan redistricting process, but they did a substitute amendment, essentially replacing that language earlier with the maps. Um, so yeah, that passed within a couple hours, both houses of the uh, state legislature, and went to Governor Evers' desk. And Sean, you've been following this map saga a long time, including that uh, podcast series mapped out. In the scope of possible maps for Wisconsin, how does this map uh, look in terms of, and I'm going to be technical here, goodness and badness for either party? Oh, boy. I mean, that's uh, that's in the eye of the beholder. I think it's certainly a lot better for Democrats than the world they've been living in um, politically for like the past 13, 14 years, where, um, you know, uh, under the current map and the map that preceded it, both drawn by Republicans Democrats never really had any realistic chance of capturing majority in the legislature. If the map that the you know governor drew, that the legislature passed, that he may now sign, if that were to become law, then Democrats would have a fighting shot at capturing a majority in the Senate or in the Assembly if they won the most votes in a statewide election. Now, the next big question, Rich, is will the governor sign these maps? Uh, people reading comments from the governor have come to exactly opposite conclusions. So I think the answer is we don't know at this point. Do we have an idea of when the governor would act uh, potentially on these maps one way or the other? Well, uh, Sean can probably he might have to correct me, but I believe <laughs> that uh, by the when a bill is sent to the governor's desk, he's got something like six days to act on it. Um but so I, that would essentially be, I mean, it could happen today, maybe it could happen next week. We don't know what's going to happen or when it might happen, but it seems like it's it's near. That's about as far as I can tell. And the incentive structure here, Sean, is OK. So the Democrat, the governor could take this Republican version of his map and run with it. But I think the thought maybe is that the state Supreme Court, with its new liberal majority, might do something even better for Democrats. Is that part of is that weighing in the background here? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the calculation is that the governor's map, while better for Democrats than the world they've been living in, is not uh, the best option for Democrats among the options currently before the state Supreme Court in that redistricting case. So, you know, they they could. um they could take this or, you know, take their chances politically that the court would give them something better uh, if the governor were to veto this map. So there's a lot at play here, you know, including what Tony Evers has said in terms of what he wants from redistricting. These, these are his maps that they sent to his desk, uh, and he had previously said that he would sign them. 
Talking to Sean Johnson and Rich Kramer from the WPR News team, looking at the latest in the long saga of Wisconsin's election boundaries, election maps. Republicans in the legislature passed some maps that Governor Evers had previously backed. Will he sign it? We'll find out. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts or questions. Let's go to your calls now. Will is with us in Eau Claire. Will, hi. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. I have a question. I've been following this for years, as a lot of us have. And <clears throat> it seems unusual, in quotes, that the Republicans would um, accept the governor's maps, you know, given what uh, the guests have just said about, you know, maybe that's their best calculation that uh, for them. And the governor said he'd sign them. But he, as I remember, or as I read... When the governor said he'd um, sign, you know, a bill that is essentially his, if it were the same thing. And I read that um, one of the differences, or maybe the only difference, you know, from what I've read, is that the Republican um, change in in what they have approved uh, would take effect at uh, – at the election in the fall, and the governor's proposal was that they would start, uh, the change would uh, begin immediately. I, I'm just curious what the gov- uh, your guests think of that, and is that true? Thanks. Well, thanks for the call. And, Rich, uh, in your reporting and elsewhere, I've seen that the Democrats have objected to the, the timeline on this. It would be in effect for uh, the November elections, but not necessarily for recall or special elections between now and then. Uh, what are we hearing? Yeah, that's right. There's there's a line at the very end of the bill that it, that the, the, are effectively the maps, um, and it does say that special elections or potential recall elections would not be held under you know those those Evers maps. So one of the theories that's been swirling since this uh, plan by Republicans to introduce uh, the governor's identical maps uh, was announced, the theory is that well that could be an out. Uh, you know, that could be aimed at protecting Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. There are some conservatives that are angry with how he's handled the potential impeachment of uh, Wisconsin Elections Commission Administrator Megan Wolf. So they're thinking that, well, maybe this this caveat in the bill is about that. But uh, I just got to look at a Legislative Reference Bureau memo today that says, no, it was the Reference Bureau that added that language in there, and they said that that's standard practice. Um, that's about it, all I know on that. Thanks for that call. Dave is with us now in Wausau. Dave, hi. Hi there. So I guess my question slash comment is, realistically, these maps were presented years ago and the legislature slept on them because everything was weighed in their favor with the new bill that they're trying to pass a why don't they have just done this years ago if they were on board and b how many more devils are in the details you mentioned the substituted amendment but did that keep the the language where the legislature could choose a new map if they rejected the other ones multiple times or is that completely gone Dave, uh, thanks a lot for that call. Sean, first of all, yeah, this had replaced this thing that was going to have an Iowa-style redistricting, except 
that the legislature could step in in the last uh, minute and just change it to what they want. That's just all gone now, if I have that right. Yeah, right? exactly. So that that was that was the bill that they used to do all this with the maps, but essentially they just deleted all that. So anything that had to do with the uh, changes to the process for redistricting in Wisconsin, the Iowa model that you talk about sometimes, that's just all gone. All that lawmakers did was use that bill to uh, as a vehicle to put these maps on. So all that they voted on this past week uh, were the governor's maps, uh, and that's all that is before the governor right now. And as to why they did that now and not before, it's just political circumstances have changed. You know, they um, they had uh, for years they had the legislature, Republicans did the governor's office. And conservatives had the state Supreme Court. Uh, now Tony Evers is governor. Liberals have a majority on the court. And um, to hear them describe it, this is kind of the best option for them. And uh, thanks for that call, Dave. From our first two callers, Sean, and I think from a lot of Democrats who voted against this in the uh, legislature, I get the sense that they're, you know, doing their Admiral Akbar from Return of the Jedi. It's a trap. <laughs> the, the Democrats yeah, here good. are saying uh, we're worried that so, something else, uh, maybe a lawsuit or something, is still coming. What are the, the concerns they're bringing up that there's something hidden here? Yeah, Democrats are not used to hearing Assembly Speaker Robin Voss saying, hey, you won this time. Uh, big win for Governor Evers. And so there's sort of a sense of, I don't know, uh, paranoia out there that, like, there is something up here that the speaker's not tell us, telling us about. He wouldn't just concede this way. And so there's some Democrats are worried that, you know, this could be um, just teeing up a federal lawsuit, that Republicans are going to pass this, the governor's going to sign it, and then they'll go to federal court. And even if they don't get the map thrown out, they could get it blocked uh, and keep their their current map, the very Republican map, in place for 2024. That's, you know, that's that's kind of the going theory uh, that has been out there among some Democrats. Boss, when he was asked about that, said, "Like, look, no, that's that's not it. Uh, in, you know, if you have a map that is passed by a legislature and signed by a governor, a court's not just going to throw that out." So that's his response to that theory on why they might be doing what they're doing but yeah the the, the democrats um are uneasy i think is uh putting it mildly we're talking to wpr reporter rich kramer wpr capitol bureau chief sean johnson earlier this week the republican controlled legislature here in wisconsin passed a set of district maps for the state legislature that match ones that governor evers had proposed a while back we're finding out what this all means, what could happen next. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts, your questions about what's going on here. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Rich Kramer and Sean Johnson from the Wisconsin Public Radio News team looking at the Wisconsin State Legislature this week. Both chambers, controlled by Republicans, passed new state legislative maps that line up with the ones that Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, had proposed earlier in the process. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Back to your calls now. Perry is with us in Ocanto. Perry, hi. Yes. Um, my thoughts are, are this. We've waited uh, 13 years for fair maps. What I've uh, read were the two experts when they analyzed all the maps they said that Evers maps were 
pretty good, but it still gave the Democrats a slight edge of 53% uh, of the votes. And I'm thinking that we should just see what the experts say. And if your guests could um, talk about if we do wait, what would be the downside on the Democratic side if um, gotcha. we waited for the experts to give their maps because they said they could draw. Perry, gotcha. And I think Perry misspoke. Uh, the Evers map still has a slight advantage for Republicans, but not as, as uh, much as the current one. Now, Rich, a couple things Perry brought up there. If the governor does veto this, we've got, uh, as Perry mentioned, a couple of experts bringing their maps, I think, to the state Supreme Court. Like, what what happens if Evers says, thanks, but no thanks? If the governor uh, vetoes the maps, then then it's all eyes on the court. Essentially, um, they 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 said back in December twenty second when they um, found the the old GOP maps uh, unconstitutional. They said, "Look, legislature and governor, we want you to play nice, but if you can't, we're going to get involved. You know, we're we're going to pull the car right over, and uh, pick the maps ourselves." So. It's very likely that, uh, I mean, I guess if there's a veto, then we'd just be waiting on the court for a, a decision. Thanks for that call, Perry. And then, Sean, uh, as I mentioned, I believe the Evers map still has a slight lean toward Republicans. That's partly because of Wisconsin uh, political geography. Uh, how does that, how much better could things be hypothetically for Democrats if the court does this and goes to something that uh, lays out a little better for Democrats? Yeah, I mean, like if you there, there's been a few breakdowns of the governor's maps out there. So one was done by John Johnson of Marquette University uh, using 2022 election results. Um, under Evers map, uh, he projected a, a 53 to 46 uh, Republican majority uh, under current law. <laughs> It's 64 Republican, 35 Democratic. So, uh, you know, that it's a it's a big leap compared to what is happening right now, but it's still a slight Republican edge. If you look at, there are other options out there. For example, the plaintiffs who brought this case uh, with the help of the liberal firm Law Forward, their map would give closer to a 50-50 split. It's like a 50 Republican, 49 Democrat uh, projected outcome uh, based on the 2022 results. And then you look at the expert report that uh, an analyzed these maps using um, different metrics, but they kind of reached you know, a similar conclusion that the governor moves the state, the legislature closer to 50-50, the plaintiffs move it closer yet, but big picture, the experts said that if you took either of those plans and even a couple others submitted to the court by Democrats, that uh, if Democrats were to win a majority of the vote, they'd win a majority of the seats. And if Republicans were to win a majority of the vote, they'd be projected to win a majority of the seats. And by the way, John Johnson, the researcher Sean just mentioned, will be on the morning show Monday at 7 to break down what these maps mean for both parties and for voters around the state. That's 7 a.m. Monday on the morning show. And we've got WPR's own Rich Kramer and Sean Johnson with us looking at the state's legislative maps and the latest developments. Back to your calls now. Steve is with us in Sun Prairie. Hey, Steve. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, the first thing, which is kind of funny when you talk about experts, there is no right here. 
there is there is no expert that can say this is the right map. So it's a little frustrating to hear people refer to as experts. But beyond that, you know, it's kind of funny that the Democrats are trying to play the same game that the Republicans were were were, were playing, talking about wanting fairness when they recognize, I hey, we have unethical Janet in our back pocket. So let's see if we can get something better. It, it's just politics on both sides. Both parties are guilty of it. And I'm tired to hear about experts when this is not an expert type of situation where there's a right or wrong answer. Steve, thanks for the call. The experts we talk to do try try to lay out some of the different options uh, and things like that. But, Sean, uh, Steve's point that, you know, the right map, the fair map, there are a lot of different standards, as you've researched uh, for for mapped out, uh, a lot of different standards that go into making these maps and a lot of different ways to do it. Yeah, I mean, so what these experts, and I will use the term because these guys know what they're talking about, um, what they did in their report is they produced the report using metrics that were laid out by the court. And some of those metrics are non-negotiable. You know, you got to follow the state constitution's guidelines. And so the report looked at how it did there. The optional metric uh, that the court laid out this time was that uh, they wanted the they wanted the experts to measure partisan fairness and that is a subjective term um they measured it different ways showing you know how you know essentially how the map would perform under a 50 50 election uh being one of them um that is where it's subjective you know in terms of what is right and wrong you know this court says we should have a map that is fair to the parties the previous court, conservatives, said we should have a map that changes the least amount possible. Both were judgment calls based on those justices. Um, they are not, you know, uh, not statute, not uh, constantly, you know, written in the Constitution. They were what the court said was fair in that moment, and so that's what these experts went on went by as they chose these maps or as they recommended these maps. Steve, thanks again for that call. Rich, we've talked about, you know, some uh, objections Democratic lawmakers have raised, some of their concerns. Can you talk a little more about what we heard from Republicans in the legislature about why they said, okay, we're going with the Evers map? I think one said something like, I'd rather, you know, being stabbed instead of uh, beheaded or (laughs) thoughts along those lines. What, how are they expressing their, I guess, resignation toward these maps? Yeah, the the comments have been interesting. Um, Essentially, my takeaway from it is that Republicans, especially the leaders, are saying, look, we got two choices. We can pass the governor's map or let the, the court's uh, liberal majority pick maps that would be more favorable to Democrats. They've they've called some of those other options uh, gerrymanders. And um, so in particular, Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahue said that the writing is on the wall. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss says he's confident that Republicans can still win majorities, win elections under Evers' maps, but he also said the legislature will be up for grabs. And, you know, on the uh, on the left, too, you've got a wide range of opinions. Like, we, we talked about some of the objections, some of the concerns that, that some of the Democratic folks have about the process, about this addition to the end of this MAPS bill. Well, we've also got groups that have been pushing back against gerrymandering or fighting to end gerrymandering for years and years. Liberal aligned, they also, uh, you know, kind of advise the governor on stuff. They've come out and said they they hope that the governor signs these maps into law, saying the process wasn't perfect, but it would be a big shift for Wisconsin. 
And Sean, just our last few moments, are we due for a new installment of Mapped Out? Lots happened since that dropped. I will take it under advisement, Rob. <laughs> I do feel like there's been a little bit that has happened since our last episode. And uh, I don't think we would have predicted it turning out quite this way when we finished that one either. Sean, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Rob. And Rich, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rob. Sean Johnson is WPR's Capitol Bureau Chief. Rich Kramer is a WPR reporter based in Eau Claire. They've both been following the story we've been talking about, the future of Wisconsin's state legislative district maps. Both chambers of the Republican-controlled legislature approved a proposed set of maps that were originally proposed by Democratic Governor Tony Evers, watching, as we heard, to see if he will sign or veto those over the next week or so. Coming up Monday here on Central Time, a big census of agriculture in Wisconsin sees further declines in the number of dairy farms, but an increase in younger farmers. We'll check out the details and what it means for rural communities around the state. If you are one of those younger farmers, maybe just getting into the profession, love to hear from you. You can email ideas at WPR.org. Also on Monday, there are successful treatments out there for opioid addiction, but not everyone who needs those treatments has access to them. Get the latest on addiction treatment and access Monday here on Central Time.